All financial advice provided on this show is for entertainment and educational purposes only. The financial ideas and strategies discussed are only provided as a starting point for a conversation about money matters. With regard to your particular investments and financial strategies, consult your financial planner, CPA, or investment professional. All your financial decisions are yours and yours alone to make and subsequently are solely your responsibility. The information that is supplied through the context of the radio program and any repurposing of its content by the host or network is a combination and collection of solid financial investment understanding, opinion, and comments. This network, show, and its host are not liable for financial strategies, outcomes that you employ in any manner that result in any kind of loss. Shares of corporate sponsors may be the subject of buy or sell recommendations in Jay Taylor's newsletter in accordance with Jay's objective opinion. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. This hour will help investors fix issues and achieve personal gain. Now, here's your host, Jay Taylor. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm speaking to you here in uh, from New York City on the 13th day of March, 2018. I do want to tell you that I am the author of a newsletter called Jay Taylor's Gold Energy and Tech Stocks. Uh, you can subscribe to that letter by going to miningstocks.com, miningstocks.com, or you can call our office here in New York uh, during normal work hours, 718-457-1426, 718-457-1426. I would also encourage you to consider subscribing to Chen Lin's newsletter. He's done extremely well in picking stocks. He works very, very hard, uh, but he has uh, he's done very, very well. Uh, took one uh, one small account that I'm aware of. It took from five thousand four hundred dollars. Uh, ten years later, turned it into two and a half million dollars over a ten year period of time. So uh, he now shares that information with his subscribers. It's ChenPicks.com if you're interested in subscribing to his newsletter. ChenPicks.com. I do want to encourage you to continue sending your thoughts, criticisms, praises, whatever ideas you have along to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. Questions for Taylor at gmail.com. I also uh, want to let you know that uh, I am more actively involved in, in tweeting these days. My tweet handle is jtaylormedia, J-A-Y Taylor Media. We do want to thank our sponsors for making this show economically viable. Our sponsors for this week are Bonterra Resources, Dynacor Gold Mines, Genesis Metals Corp., New Range Gold Corp., Northern Empire, Novo Resources, and Uranium Energy. Before I introduce uh, the topic of today's show and uh, our guest, I would like to make some comments of my own regarding the markets and a couple of our sponsors. A few weeks ago, I visited Northern Empire's property in Nevada, located towards the southern end of the Walker Lane trend. The greatest upside for junior gold stocks comes when discoveries are made, significant high-grade discoveries are made that are economically viable and there is every reason for optimism with regard to this company's exploration targets in what is known as the crown project there are several targets along trend namely SNA the shear zone secret pass and daisy uh, that will be drilled over the coming months investors should if they're interested in this story keep an eye on the news flow because news flow is what drives these stocks. I will be uh, posting, as I do with all the companies that I follow in my newsletter, I post their uh, news uh, events at miningstocks.com. Miningstocks.com, the front page, the home page uh, for all the companies. So when there's significant news, you can go there and pick up on it. But Northern Empire brings with it uh, an attribute that many, if not most, I would definitely say most junior exploration companies do not have, and that is a permitted functioning gold recovery plant that it can turn on and begin producing gold anytime it desires. And that is very valuable 
that's a very valuable asset for this company, no matter what happens to its exploration program, because for it means that if there, you know, when there's a downturn in the in the uh, in the gold markets, a lot of times it's very difficult to raise high risk capital for drilling. I'm not suggesting we're facing that now. In fact, I'm as bullish as ever. I think we got several years to run yet in the gold bull market, but nonetheless, there can be times when it's more difficult and. One of the safety things that this company provides is that ability to turn on gold production anytime with a permitted plant. Very difficult to do these days to get uh, plants and production facilities permitted. Well, it's no doubt one of the main reasons that Core Mining is a major shareholder of this company. Certainly, Core is looking at that as a, I think, as a as a possible asset and a benefit to them as they are discovering and building their own resources in that part of the world. Northern Empire is traded in Canada under the symbol NM, and you can buy it in the U.S. as I have under the symbol PSPGF. It was trading at 95 cents U.S. money a little earlier today with 66.5 million shares outstanding, giving it a market cap around $63 million. Another sponsor that I think is hugely undervalued right now is Bonterra Resources, which is uncovering a multi-million ounce gold deposit in Quebec. Next week, Nav Dhaliwal, the CEO of that company, is scheduled to be my guest. So I think uh, if you're interested in this sector, you'll definitely want to hear what he has to say. I would also like to comment on Novo Resources, which stock has been trading exceptionally well over the last several weeks. Given an absence of news, the new strength in Novo's shares are no doubt related to uh, the the fact that the large overhang of warrants have now all been exercised as the company uh, noted today. So that takes off a downside that selling pressure that was there with those warrants as they were being exercised. Novo nearly doubled from around $2 in late January to just a whisker under $4 U.S. money I'm talking about uh, just last week. And the stock is currently trading uh, earlier today, at least as I was preparing for the show, at around $3.70. Now, John Knoll, who manages a head fund portfolio and who is considered by some folks in Vancouver as one of the best technical analysts for junior exploration stocks, told me last week, and I quote, that Novo could really light up if it can hold above the Canadian $4 area as we build for the next mega wave up. End of quote. Well, Novo closed this week at $4.63. That was last week. Today, it's trading at around four seventy-five. So clearly, it's holding up very nicely uh, in that range that John thinks needs to be uh, needs to hold up. Also related to Novo, I spoke to the president of another junior exploration company yesterday, who said he had done very well with his investments in Novo. He told me he is convinced that Quinton is on to a very large gold discovery, and that the gold is in the system down dip into the basin. The only issue, and it is not to be taken lightly, is the means of assaying and calculating the resource. That said, this person believes that Quinton could be on to one of the largest gold discoveries, quote, in the last 100 years, end of quote. Which, of course, if he is discovering the next Whitwaters-Rand deposit, that would certainly be the case. Again, speaking of Novo, I sent uh, Dr. Quentin Henning, the president of the company, the, the chairman of the company yesterday, asking him if he might be available for the May 2018 Metals Investor Forum. Unfortunately for investors who attend that event, he will not be able to attend because he'll be down in Australia attending to Novo's business. However, he did offer me a tip that I am taking very seriously. He gave me the name of a stock with some very exciting prospects for a Carlin-style discovery in Nevada. He simply said, uh, quote, I am directing the technical work there. We may have hit something, end of quote. 
And, of course, uh, the operative word is may. Nobody knows for sure. They haven't assayed anything yet, but they're looking at the rocks, and it's exactly what they're looking for in Carlin-style mineralization. I have spoken to the management of this company and plan to introduce it to my subscribers this week. And so, if you are interested in picking up on this exciting story, go to miningstocks.com, miningstocks.com, or call our office, 718-457-1426, to sign up for my newsletter, J. Taylor's Gold Energy and Tech Stocks. Well, regarding the economic picture here in the United States, one of the themes I am seeing more and more of uh, is at least a small rise in the fortunes of Main Street, along with rising prices of uh, all manner of commodities. Next week, I plan to talk to John Rubino about wage inflation and whether that means spiking interest rates uh, will be will follow, or whether interest rates will rise regardless of uh, economic activity. Well, some of the headlines that uh, from the, from my go-to source uh, to avoid fake news, I, I use Zero Hedge a lot. Here are a couple of the more typical headlines that underscore my idea that Main Street is now finally getting some attention. Consumer prices accelerate as apparel and car insurance rates skyrocket. Another one was Main Street is on fire again. Small business confidence surges. And uh, at John Rubino's site, dollarcollapse.com, he talked about wage growth and a shortage of skilled workers as the real economy grows. And I think it is interesting that these headlines are definitely in sync with what Michael Oliver has been telling us about rising commodity prices and rising interest rates. Well, Michael will be with me right after the first commercial break uh, of today's show. Uh, In terms of today's show, I've titled it, Could the Petrol Yuan Overtake the Petrodollar? David Jensen and Michael Oliver are my guests today. David will discuss an emerging international market dynamic that some think may threaten the U.S. dollar hegemony. While left-leaning news media focuses on alleged call-girl encounters that President Trump may have had, they say nothing of newly formed futures exchanges in Shanghai for both oil and gold that may indeed threaten dollar hegemony. Now, let me ask you, what is more important in our understanding of the future welfare of the United States and its economy, whether Donald Trump had an engagement with a call girl sometime in the past or whether rivals to the United States are looking for ways to replace the dollar as the world's reserve currency? What happens to our markets if the dollar were to die, if the dollar were to lose massive amounts of its value? Our way of life in the American empire, if the dollar goes down, what happens? I'll leave that uh, for you to ponder. That um, The Chinese and Russians have been dramatically building their gold reserves over the past five to ten years is a topic never mentioned among mainstream folks. They ignore the fact that China is emerging as an economic equal to the United States and that ultimately a strong defense depends on a strong economy. At the same time, except for a few people like those that appear on this show from time to time, David Stockman, Ron Paul, just to name a couple, The mainstream and Wall Street totally ignore the fact that we are heading towards a horrific financial storm with interest rates rising to levels that can only be expected to lead uh, to a systematic market breakdown. These are some of the topics I will be talking with David Jensen about during the second half of today's show. We do have to go to break now. Don't go away because Michael Oliver will be with me. It's always good to have him with me because he provides an objective view uh, and to help keep me under check uh, with regard to my uh, subjective views of markets, uh, theoretical views that sometimes has me guessing in the wrong direction. And it's good to keep your feet on the ground, and Michael Oliver definitely helps us do that. He'll be right back right after the break. Don't go away.
Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7. New Range Gold Corps is a Canadian junior explorer focused on its recently acquired flagship Pamlico Gold Project. Located in Nevada, one of the best mining jurisdictions in the world. Known as one of Nevada's highest-grade gold districts, Pamlico was held by private interests for most of its history and remains largely unexplored. Drilling by New Range is already confirming the legendary grades of the district with intercepts up to 341 grams gold per ton. Well-financed with no debt, New Range is unlocking shareholder value at Pamlico and trades under TSX symbol NRG. We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now, toll free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Journey Hard Times and Good Times. I am your host, Jerry Taylor, and I'm really pleased to have with me once again our most frequent guest on the show, Michael Oliver. Thanks for joining me again, Michael. Hi, Jay. Good to be back. And we always like to tell people it's OliverMSA.com, OliverMSA.com, to learn more about Michael's work. Um, where do you want to start today, Michael? Sure, I don't know. Everything's, everything's happening out there. Things were popping. Uh, <laughs> the... Uh, Bond market rally is persisting a bit, and it's, I think, largely counter-trend to the S&P on a, on a brief basis, and that the, as the stock market gets rattled, of course, uh, some investors will buy bonds. It's a counter-trend rally for bonds. We expected it, uh, and it's still ongoing, and now we're starting to get wobbles. And our key focus in stocks right now is not basically the developed markets. We think they're broken. <laughs> Europe, uh, I think the Nikkei will break in the second quarter. Uh, Europe's broken, broke in February, as far as we're concerned, in terms of quarterly momentum. S&P broke, Dow broke, but the NASDAQ 100 and the Internet stocks and the semiconductor stocks didn't. And that's the narrow point of focus right now in our report. In fact, we, we had one yesterday called NDX in the crosshairs. Mm-hmm. And we're focused basically blind to everything else because we've made a judgment call that those are broken. But the thing that's holding us up is this glaring blow-off in in those narrow areas. And we think that's highly vulnerable for a collapse. And we suspect that once it breaks, it will be the leader on the downside, much like it was the leader on the upside. And anybody who's been around markets for decades knows that that tends to be the case. Uh, You know, when the dot-com bubble broke, they led the downside. They led the upside, they led the downside. Housing stocks up and led the downside, Mm -hmm. uh, et cetera, et cetera. So we suspect that'll be the better place to be short stocks is once uh, PNQI, which is the ETF for internet stocks, and SMH, which is the ETF for semiconductors. When they break down, technically, uh, that'll be the best place to be there. Mm -hmm. Uh, 
Meanwhile, in the foreign exchange markets, we've had an attempt by the dollar to rally, which is, again, another futile attempt in our view, and it's, it's wobbled off. It's about a, point, uh, about a point above its bear market low and about a point from its recent rally high, so it's just sort of stuck, unable to really get a rally going. Um, we think there's more upside now. I think this year the yen's going to join in, which it didn't in 2017. The yen was totally dormant. In fact, uh, we, we made a note in a recent report that if you look at a yen chart, yen futures, that is, and overlay it with a silver chart, they look identical. Yeah. Now, the yen started to move recently, and I think it's for real. It's uh, rejoining the upside that it began in 2016, but it went to sleep at 17. So now the dollar is going to have another problem, not just a strong euro, but strong yen. And when you put the two of those together, you're talking uh, 70% of the dollar index. Yeah. Uh, Commodity what, what, what area, you... we've got the grains going now, mm-hmm. which is, uh, they were totally asleep for the last few years. As far as we're concerned, it's total green light on soybeans, corn, and wheat, and it's fresh. Uh, and we suspect they have a good percentage upside move coming in the next several quarters. Um, in the soft commodities, cocoa has broken out big time. In fact, I don't watch it that closely, but we defined a breakout uh, about a month ago. Uh, we issued a report on cocoa, <laughs> of all things. And it's went from 2000 last month, it's 2500 this month. Wow, big move. Uh, yeah, people look at stocks and trying to make money there, and they can. Uh, there's so many neat portions to the menu that are available to investors. And it, the, yeah. you don't have to use futures, you can use ETFs and so forth. Uh, but I think also coffee and sugar, which are the other parts of the soft arena in commodities, will turn up in the next quarter or two and join cocoa. And you'll have a full-court press on the upside in the commodity arena, uh, which you haven't had for the last few years. It's been mainly oil and gold and silver and copper. Mm-hmm. Uh, this time, I think it'll be across the board. So, so you think? So, so, so you really believe the softs are going to lead the commodity sec- sector no, no, in I general? No, I think they'll, they'll not lead. I think they'll, they'll be one of the last to turn because, again, the grains have now turned, yeah. the metals turned in 2016, right. uh, oil turned in 2016. And we think that now the, the foods are going to turn. Grains have already done it, and I think the softs will, as a group, uh, turn up. And, and once that happens, basically the full commodity arena is, is, is shifted to positive. And, I see. Uh, usually the trends, in the, by the way, the trends in the commodity arena, when they turn on an annual momentum basis, and that's what we're looking at, mm-hmm. uh, they last for years. They don't last for a few quarters. Uh, mm-hmm. Remember, they peaked back in 2011. But down through 2016, basically. Five years so, of negative performance and, and net trend decline. Uh, but I think all that's reversing now. Mm-hmm. And, uh, as stocks turn down and commodities up, it'll again be a time to be favoring commodities over stocks. And I think investor preferences will shift fairly rapidly. Well, they haven't yet, uh, very, very rapidly, so, uh, not seemingly to any great extent. I mean, if you, if you look at the market capitalization in stocks and bonds, uh, mm-hmm. the commodities, if you take all the commodities together, it'd be minuscule compared to, especially oh, the bond true. market. Right? Yeah, uh, no, I, no, no so argument we, there. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so we see a little bit of money already, coming out. Yeah. I think already smart money has started to move, not totally out, but out of the stock market because they perceive it as... They, they can't define it necessarily, but they perceive it as, as high and overbought and overextended in time and all that, and therefore they get nervous. And they, they say, well, what, what looks stable? What looks uh, like it's at ground zero? And clearly right. the grains look that way for the last uh, two years. And by our work, yeah. they've now turned. 
We have a, so, uh, we've had a nine-year nine-year bull market in equities, which is almost as long as it's, as as the bull markets have ever lasted. Historic, yeah. And it seems to be the case that the the small investors start to get in towards the end as the smart money starts to move out. It's always very tragic, it seems. In in most yeah. events, uh, it, it, the small people finally they you know they're convinced that the risk is gone because the markets have mm-hmm. gone up and they never go down anymore, mm-hmm. and in they come. Uh, you, you're uh, you know, looking at your MSA 360 weekend report, man, it's so clear that the T-bond and the, uh, well, certainly the, you know, the Bund, uh, those things, those those markets are really broken, aren't they? Oh, absolutely. Um, the one I'm waiting on is the JGB, the Japanese government bond futures. They're slipping a bit, but they they need to drop another point uh, to join in. And at that point, I actually think that the Japanese government bonds could have the greatest traumatic downside. Yeah. Uh, because of the, the way they look on the annual momentum charts is very similar to the bonds and the bonds. Now, the U.S. bonds and German bonds have already broken down. Uh, that means rates going up, prices going down. And we think it's a major, major move because it's on annual momentum. I'm not looking at weekly charts or daily. I'm looking at going back 10, 15 years. Uh, the JGBs have the same setup, but they haven't broken it, which indicates, well, the BOJ, they're still, you know, God's almighty, and they control their, their rates. But I think when the Bunds, uh, excuse me, the JGBs break through uh, much below 150, and they're just, they're 150.7 right now. You drop another point, close a month there, they're gone. And I think they'll probably have a big catch-up to the other bond markets, and rates will rise indicating that the BOJ is no longer in control. You know, Michael, one of the reasons that I've gained so much confidence in your work over the last couple of years since I've been following you, I see your charts, and I see your momentum charts, and I compare them with the price charts. And, for example, I'm looking at the S&P 500 in your weekend report right now, and it's so clear from the momentum chart that the market has broken down, yet you can't make the same... Well, you, I guess you could do it to a degree on price, but nothing as definitive as what you see in your momentum charts. And that's mm-hmm. pretty much the way it is throughout. And what I've found very often, if not almost always, is the momentum leads price. Would you say that's, that's, that's true? Uh, that's why we <laughs> have long ago when we founded the firm in 1992, uh, we, we always post price charts with our momentum charts so people can see the contrast. You know, yes. see the every man's chart, which is the price chart. Mm-hmm. Everybody can see that. Uh, it's the bleeding obvious. But the, the, the issue is the momentum, and usually it turns, um, major tops and bottoms. Momentum will clearly break first. I mean, it doesn't take a scientist to, to even glance at the chart and say, oh, that's broken. Mm-hmm. And then you look at the price chart of that market, and it might not look broken. And that usually is the way it is. It's momentum will tend to turn first, and price will then follow suit. And uh, same at bottoms. Uh, and therefore, that's why we emphasize momentum trend structure. Uh, this is not one of these loop-the-loop things like, you know, MACD or RSI that everybody has on their quote screens. Yeah, those right. things, they loop up and they loop down. We don't want to look at those things. We're looking at so things that are far crisper you, than that. Yeah, yeah. Your, but your momentum work is really proprietary, isn't it? I mean, it's not something well, that everybody yeah. has. Yeah. yeah. And it's that's not what available you... on... on uh, software programs, no, it's not. No, and you're not selling that either. You're no. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, you know, I have to ask you, with just a couple of minutes left here, four minutes, my engineer is telling me, uh, silver, uh, it, when I look at that price momentum chart, it looks kind of boring. 
Nothing very mm-hmm. much happening there. We're still a little bit below the momentum line. Mm-hmm. But uh, what are your comments on silver? You, you talked that you were comparing them with uh, what? With the yen a little bit ago, I think it was, yeah. wasn't it? Well, silver did the same thing as gold in the same time period. Early 2016, silver turned up enough to blow out major overhead resistance on its annual momentum charts. Gold did it at 1150 price level. I forget what price silver was at that time, that $13, $14 or something. But silver exploded far more on a percent basis in that mm-hmm. 2016 surge. If you recall, you know, we turned up in February, and by April, May, June, July, uh, gold was uh, $200, $300 off its low, and silver was, ran all the way up to $21. So on a percent basis, silver had a much bigger surge post the low. But then it fell back, as did gold in 2017, but it fell back and went to sleep. And is, is you know, right now at uh, 1656, uh, I think, is the last quote yeah. I saw. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas gold is only a few percentage points away from the highs of the last few years. So gold is, you know, firm back. It's crowding the top end of its price range, where silver is well below the highs of last year and the year before. So it hasn't performed as well as gold. But when we look at quarterly momentum and annual momentum of silver, I see structures overhead that, that look essentially uh, determined to happen. Mm-hmm. In other words, sometimes a structure will set itself up where you can look at it and say, oh, that's inevitable. You know, it's just mm-hmm. a matter of when you're going to cross that line. Mm-hmm. And I would say that in the low 17s, uh, about 1720 plus, on silver, you, you start to break out anew. Uh, it's still in an annual positive momentum trend, even though it went to sleep last year. But it's still mm-hmm. a positive long-term trend. But it, it, it went to sleep. And the question is, when will it wake up and rejoin the trend that began in 2016? I suspect it's very soon. Uh, if gold goes through uh, the recent highs, goes through 1350, for example, at a monthly close, I think silver will be blowing through these levels that we've identified in our reports and will engage and probably at that point again outperform gold like it did in early 2016. Right. That's um, usually the trend. It goes... And it, I think it GDX looks yeah. very much like gold, uh, excuse me, like silver as well. You know, the gold uh-huh. markets, they've uh-huh. gone to sleep all last year. Yeah, for sure. Mo- Tell me you know, about most it. Most people yeah. who own them think they went down. Actually, if you look at the chart and are objective, they just went to sleep. Right. Uh, and I think GDX has essentially the same type of potential to beat gold on a percentage basis in the next leg. Right. Well, the thing is, uh, what I'd like my my listeners to be aware of is that, you know, we talk to you almost every week about gold and silver, stocks and bonds, maybe a couple of other things here and there. But you cover so many different markets. And, for example, I'm looking at uh, at a stock mosaic, which is the uh, soft commodities uh, fertilizer, I guess it is, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's right. Uh, And moo is a way to play. So, there are so many things that you cover, and as you say, there's always some market you can make money in in the upside, but you've got to have a, a view of the whole picture, and of course, most people at Wall Street's happy to keep you just in stocks and bonds. There's lots of other places to go. So, uh, Michael, I want to thank you very much for being with us again. Always a pleasure. Your insights are, are so valuable, uh, and of course, they'd be even more valuable for those who subscribe. It's OliverMSA.com, Oliver. MSA.com. Thank you so much, Michael. We'll look to do it again next week. All the best to you. Take care. Okay. Bye-bye. Well, folks, uh, we are going to break now, but don't go away because David Jensen will be with us to talk to me uh, about some of the issues that I I mentioned earlier in the uh, introduction of today's show. We're going to be talking to David about uh, the petrodollar and uh, something emerging. Some people 
believe is very, very important, the petro-yuan, or the Chinese uh, petroleum-related currency. So don't go away. We'll be right back with David Jensen. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Noble Resources Corp. trades on the OTCQX under the symbol NSRPF and on the TSX Venture Exchange under NVO. Its flagship assets are located in the Karatha region of Western Australia, where they are currently drilling and trenching their Purdy's reward project. In addition, Novo has partnered with Sumitomo Mining Corporation to advance its Beaton's Creek Gold Project toward production. With over $70 million in cash and strong shareholder support from the likes of Kirkland Lake Gold, Novo is well on its way to establishing itself as one of the top junior explorers and developers in Australia. Uranium Energy Corps, NYSE Market, UEC, is a leader in the coming bull market in uranium. With spot uranium up more than 40% in two months, the new bull market is just starting. UEC has the cash, the licensed resources, the permitted processing center, the advanced technology, and the experienced team to lead this market. Get to know this exciting company now by visiting uraniumenergy.com. NYSE Market, UEC. We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now. Toll free. 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. Uh, I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really pleased to have with me, once again, a friend of mine, David Jensen. David is a, a real good friend that I've learned to know over the last uh, quite a few years, actually. And, uh, well, we share ideas of free markets and liberty. I guess uh, we have that in common for sure. Uh, he is a, a professional engineer, and uh, he's worked in the past as an aeronautical engineer. He is also uh, has an MBA, a law degree, a very well-educated person. But the most important thing about David is that he's a critical thinker who, I would say, unlike many other engineers, he's uh, he's really interested in areas outside of engineering, and he looks critically using the same skill set to look at uh, politics and economics and things that are going on in the real world, uh, uses those same gifts that he has uh, that he would be applicable to science also uses them to think critically about what's actually taking place in the world and that's one of the reasons we wanted to have him here today to talk about a very important subject uh, and that is uh, could the petrol yuan overtake the petrol dollar thanks for joining me today david my pleasure jay it's good to be back Always good to have you. We don't have you often enough. Uh, we have one hour a week to talk to people. That's uh, that's the constraint. But, um, David, just perhaps to set the table for our listeners, people that I, I think our very first guest that we had on the show back nine, almost ten years ago, 
was G. Edward Griffin, who talked to us about the creature from Jekyll Island, the creation of the Federal Reserve Bank in 1913. Can you talk to us a little bit about what the Fed did, I mean, how it altered the U.S. monetary system and what the excuse for its creation was? Yeah, well, the... the, uh the Fed was uh, created uh, ostensibly to, to avert uh, bank panics. And what they did, they argued that they needed a, a, I mean, you've heard the old joke that the Federal Reserve is not federal and it, it has no reserves. Yeah. And um, I mean, what they did was uh, because they, they wanted to get away from a, a, a gold or a sound money system to a fiat uh, printed money system, um, they replaced the the notes uh, quite quite rapidly actually they started to collect the gold and silver that were in circulation and they started to replace them with these Federal Reserve notes and what the notes did was that it allowed them to create what they called at the time an elastic monetary system and what it allowed them to do then was to uh, print money uh, which you can't do you can't print gold when you have a sound money system and it was said to uh, help prevent panics but what it really was was a it did two things is is one it was a form of gambling insurance for the financial industry so it allowed them to gamble um, and to know that with with uh, fractional reserve holdings that they could uh, run bubbles and run loose practices and they would always have the Federal Reserve there just to back them up as we most recently saw uh, of course with the with the great uh, financial crisis in 2008 and the other thing it did ultimately was allowed the Federal Reserve to control the nation's money supply, and you can throttle um, the economy. And I guess in both using in, in uh, uh, using the term throttle for both its meanings, um, they could they could run loose money, uh, expand the economy, uh, accelerate uh, speculation, uh, as we've seen now uh, in spades over the last several decades, and then they could cut it back and uh, ultimately squeeze the economy and cause the bubbles to to collapse mm-hmm. as well so i mean and of course uh, as ron paul always likes to talk about it allowed uh, deficit spending by governments because they can just uh, uh, print away the debt that is accumulated when they when they have large expenditure programs yeah they can basically front run because if they know what's coming and they're involved uh, the fed is involved and it's and it's minions close to it uh, in the other in the banking system can really know ahead of time what's happening and and actually take positions uh, for a down market or an up market, depending on whichever way it's orchestrated, right? That's right. So Roosevelt uh, really, I mean, he was really came down hard on anybody that wanted to own honest money, uh, stable money, gold. Uh, it, you know, it wasn't just a suggestion. It was a law that was punishable by, I think, $10,000 and 10 years in prison if you refuse to turn in your gold. And then Roosevelt, afterwards, uh, after he, after he, I guess he paid people what twenty-eight dollars and some cents per ounce, but then immediately afterwards increased it to thirty-five dollars. Right. That's right. Uh, there was a, a massive amount of debt that had been built up during the nineteen twenties, and in nineteen twenty-eight and nineteen twenty-nine, that the Federal Reserve cut back on the availability of money and started to raise interest rates, and ultimately cut back on the liquidity in the in the economy. And the economy collapsed, and and the the debt as a portion of GDP increased to uh, a little over 250 percent at the time, mm-hmm. and that had a very onerous effect on the economy. So they they wanted to inflate the money supply, to inflate away the level of that debt, and and they used that um, as an opportunity to take the sound money out of the hands of citizens, and ultimately concentrate uh, the control of the economy in the. 
uh, you know, the privately held uh, Federal Reserve uh, system. Right. So now we have a few people that are controlling, have enormous amounts of power and control. But up until 1971, um, at least we had an international standard, gold standard. Um, can you talk right. about the reasons given by President Nixon for temporarily, quote unquote, suspending yeah. convertibility of gold internationally? Yeah, it's it's quite funny. I mean, they had a they had a a gold problem, um, but they uh, and they had raging inflation. They had been printing money for the Vietnam War, uh, plus uh, Lyndon Johnson's uh, uh, social policies that were running massive deficits, the guns and butter policy. And so they said that they had to suspend convertibility of gold to fight inflation, which is really quite humorous because. What gold does is it prevents you from running loose monetary policy if you have a, a gold standard. Um, and the gold standard, by the way, is is really a paper money system. I'm not for it, but it's it's a promise not to print more paper than the gold that mm-hmm. you have. But it, it's always violated. Um, but so in in essence, he wasn't suspending the gold convertibility to fight inflation. He he was doing the opposite. They needed to inflate away the debt, and they didn't want the uh, foreign holders of U.S. dollars who since 1933 could still turn those in, foreign governments could still turn in their USD holdings and get gold. And they had multiples, the amount of notes outstanding uh, versus the gold that they held to to, uh, to settle them. So they suspended that temporarily, but I think full knowing that, uh, you know, you've got many times the amount of, of uh, notes outstanding of, uh, versus the amount of gold that you hold to uh, to secure those notes. Uh, you know you're not going back onto that standard again. But it was anything but fighting inflation. It was to really allow forward-looking future inflationary monetary policy. And, of course, we know now uh, how many decades later it was anything but temporary. Uh, Give us an idea. How was the dollar able to retain its value, its hegemony globally, uh, in spite of the fact that it has nothing underneath it? There's no intrinsic value to the dollar. There's no reason... In fact, the U.S. Has, has printed trillions of dollars to expand its empire, to do all kinds of things, um, and yet the dollar is to this day still respected. It's still very much uh, the world's reserve currency, the number one reserve currency. How 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 has uh, the U.S. been able to retain that privilege? Well, the the, the principal way was was through the the, the petrodollar system. Um, Prior to the to the early 70s, uh, many of the oil producers would only accept gold uh, in return for their their oil. They wanted something with intrinsic value in return for something of intrinsic value. Mm-hmm. And uh, Henry Kissinger uh, negotiated a, a deal with OPEC, where whereby OPEC would only uh, price uh, oil in dollars, and that of course creates a demand for dollars if you're going to buy oil. So it allowed. It allowed the the uh, the U.S. to export its currency, uh, if you want to call it that, to um, uh, and to run loose monetary policy because the global economy was continually expanding and there continually be a demand for more and more dollars. So it really allowed the the uh, backing of of the of the dollar with oil, if you want to uh, put it in those terms, as opposed to having it um, uh, refundable for gold uh, on demand. What it did was allow you to use those uh, those notes to to, uh, to to secure oil purchases, and th- and that was really what bound America in a terrible way to the Middle East. Um, it made them dependent to protect the petro uh, currency status. It made them uh, militarily have to focus on the Middle East to make sure that that they uh, re- retained that right. 
Well, um, so there were some guarantees, I guess, also to to the um, to the royal family in Saudi Arabia, right? Some some military guarantees as well, perhaps. Yeah, there, I mean, there's a whole series of of agreements between. I mean, if you look at the history of the Saudi family, it's not one that. Uh, from a from a democratic standpoint, uh, that you would want to negotiate with as a as a democratic nation state. If if you look back, we we see the UK ambassador there uh, when he retired uh, from his post there. Uh, one of his uh, letters has been posted online by one of the UK uh, newspapers for the late seventies, and and he made note in there that the the royal family was skimming twenty percent of the oil revenues for their own personal holding, and so mm-hmm. that that. Right away, there. If you if you act as a guarantor for a family like that, it puts you on the wrong side of of, of democracy. If if that's something that you believe in. Yeah, it's um, and when you think about it, oil was is so important because you know most nations have to import oil to a great extent, I guess. And there are some very large producers. Saudi Arabia was big. Now Russia is very large, uh, and so most countries had then to go out and get dollars. So it really provided a, a constant demand uh, and a bid for the dollar, I guess, really held the dollar up for many years, right? That's, the, that's in essence, why the dollar's been able to retain its value in spite of the fact that it has no intrinsic value. Yeah, and it becomes, it becomes held as a reserve currency also because of the value that you can secure energy with it. Mm-hmm. And that creates, a, with, a glo- with a growing global economy, it grows a continual demand for more and more dollars as, as energy and oil consumption goes up. So it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a, a very valuable franchise to have, um, um, but it creates a whole series of, of problems in terms of uh, trying to defend that franchise and the deficits you have to run to try to do that. Yeah. Well, it certainly uh, it, it enabled. I mean, one one guest I've had on this show when I was critical of the uh, of the petrodollar uh, said, "Yes, Jay, but it allowed the United States to expand its empire to spend on you know, as you you were saying, the Vietnam War was one of the reasons that we left the uh, the left the gold standard, the international gold standard. We wouldn't be able to print money. Not not every country could get away with doing that. The United States, being a superpower as it was, and the victor from World War II, I guess, mm-hmm. uh, allowed that to happen." But, um, you know, but that allowed us, so, so this guest was saying, well, yeah, but, you know, we could never have defeated the Soviet Union if we had stayed on a gold standard. Well, um, the, the Soviet Union, I think it's, and this is something uh, von Mises pointed out, was it was bound to collapse because it used central planning and there was no uh, market pricing signal to effectively allocate resources. So the story that you had to uh, have massive military spending to bring down the Soviet Union, I think, is a canard. Uh, when you have central planning, uh, you have misallocation of resources, and in the end, uh, the Austrian uh, theory of time preference uh, shows you that you will you will ultimately have more consumption uh, than than you have uh, effective production capacity, and at some point that 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 will overwhelm your system and it will collapse. Now. Military spending can accelerate that, but I would argue that it was it was always a given that the Soviet Union would collapse because of its of its central planning nature. All right. Well, that's a topic for another day. But in in the meantime, of course, there are countries that are kind of sick and tired of being told they have to accept a currency that has zero intrinsic value behind it, and which leads me to the last time the last time I recall you being on the show back in April of two thousand fourteen. 
when you told us uh, about the People's Bank of China and its announcement that China would be uh, facilitating the trading of gold and oil in Yuan, allowing gold settlements for oil, for oil, uh, thus enabling the creation of a petrol yuan to compete with the petrodollar. Can you tell our listeners uh, where that process stands now? Yes, certainly. Um, China, yeah, the, the People's Bank of China announced that um, back in 2014 that they were going to start a, a, uh, a an oil contract, a yuan-based oil contract. Um, they're one of the, they are the biggest importer of oil uh, now as a, as a single country uh, globally. And um, as their consumption increased, they wanted to use a, a one uh, pricing system for it. Um, the challenge is, is that who wants one? Right? What can you use it for? You can use it for you know, cheap consumer goods, but you only have so much need for that. Mm-hmm. And so what they announced back then and has been picked up on by many sources since then is that the one would be directly interchangeable for gold on the Shanghai Gold Exchange International Board. And the international board is in the free trade zone there in Shanghai. Um, and in that free trade zone, you can import and export gold from that zone. It's illegal to uh, export gold from China, um, but you can export it from the free trade zone on, on the, uh, the Shanghai Gold Exchange uh, international board. And so that's the way they've gotten around it is that they're now going to price a oil contract um, in one, uh, but it's going to be exchangeable for gold. And it's interesting, CNBC noted back in October this structure, but their most uh, recent articles about the Petro Yuan uh, negate any mention of the gold interchangeability, that it's ultimately a, a, a relight of the Petro Gold trade. Um, the Petro Gold trade was extinguished, of course, with the Petro Dollar in the early 1970s that was arranged. And now we have a reignition of this of this trade, and and the reason it's important is a number of things. But um, uh, number one is that the the dollar value of gold produced globally daily uh, versus the dollar value uh, of oil uh, traded dra- daily. Um, there's about 20 times more oil produced in dollar terms uh, than the uh, dollar value of gold uh, produced in dollar terms. So it, a very very small amount of daily uh, oil production switching over to gold settlement would create an enormous uh, drain and an enormous stress in, in the global uh, paper gold market. Um, and we've, you and I have talked about that a number of times, mm-hmm. Jay, but the, the gold market is structured so that in London where they trade about 90% of global gold trading, uh, they, are, they are really trading these uh, metal or gold debt instruments and not gold itself, and that's what allows them to produce um, more, more than 220 million ounces of gold a day, which <laughs> is about about two and a half times global annual mine production. If you ridiculous Chinese production, yeah, it's they, they're not trading uh, gold, and they've destroyed price discovery in the gold market, which is why so few people can make sense of gold. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's uh, but David, let me ask you: Is this? Uh, I know Alistair McLeod has been on this show. Talks about. That gold market over there in Shanghai being a hedging instrument for you know for people that don't want to accept yuan, but um, and and you can't take gold out of China. You said so. It would it would seem that you know exporters of oil mm. would you know uh, the country countries that sell like Saudi Arabia that sells oil to China would have to settle for. Uh, gold held in China, right? So it's kind of a hedging thing. They can't really take the gold out of China back to Saudi Arabia. Well, they can uh, because the you can do it through the Shanghai Gold Exchange International Board, 
which is in that free trade zone from which you can export gold. Now, oh. you, can't, uh, you cannot export gold from China itself uh, unless the Chinese government makes allowance for that. Mm-hmm. Um, but as the law stands right now, I mean, the law is whatever they say it is on any day, but as it stands right now, it's illegal to export gold, which would mean that to bring uh, to be able to export gold from the free trade zone uh, for an oil producer to take delivery of the metal, that gold would have to be sourced internationally. So it would be, have to be brought into the free trade zone uh, and then exported to the uh, the country for who, uh, who wants to take delivery. What now, guarantee? Uh, go ahead. Sorry, yeah, I just want. I mean, the the real challenge I mentioned one of them uh, was the stress on on the gold market, but the second thing is is that uh, if you see. Uh, if an oil producer, and let's just use Iran, not for any good reason except for the fact that it exports both to Europe and to China. And Iran, uh, if it can secure delivery of gold uh, bullion in return for its valuable oil, it also exports a million barrels of oil a day uh, to the Eurozone. Mm-hmm. Now, they're taking euros for that right now, but it doesn't take long to figure out that the eurozone, uh, you know, a zone that does whatever it takes on a monetary policy basis, as Mr. Draghi is is uh, fond of saying, but it doesn't take long to figure out that they're running extremely inflationary monetary policy. And you're going to be sitting there if you're an Iranian oil uh, state dealer uh, to say, well, why do I want more of this paper when I can have something that's real? Mm-hmm. And so, that, and this is something, Jay. That's I think that the biggest challenge um, is not so much for the U.S. Um, to have to deliver uh, gold for oil, because America it has uh, large exports of gold, of oil as well yeah. as imports of oil daily. And if you look on a net basis, the U.S. Uh, net uh, daily importation of oil is only about three three and a half million barrels, and. A higher, uh, a higher oil price, you can make up for that very quickly with fracking, very, very rapidly. The Eurozone imports a net of about nine, nine and a half million barrels a day, and they cannot organically ramp up their oil production uh, to meet that requirement. So the challenge there, I think, really lies, the largest challenge lies for Europe if Iran says we would like a bullion delivery just like China gives us, uh, we would like uh, bullion delivery. Uh, the, the Europe Europe will have to uh, cough that up. Now, two challenges here. Number one is it's going to end the paper game in London, which has controlled the world's uh, gold price uh, to date. Um, and, and I think if you want to settle oil and gold, you're going to have to add a zero to the price of gold at the very least for there to be enough liquidity in the system. The Eurozone uh, you know, has only so much go- uh, uh, gold, and you'd have to push that price. I, I think uh, at least add a zero to it to make it a sustainable basis for the price of gold. Uh, the wow. second, the second issue, Jay, is is that um, rising gold prices cause rising interest rates, and although the the uh, petrodollar uh, hege- hegemony, as you as you call it allowed the U.S. to do a number of things over decades. It's also created a $67 trillion total debt situation in mm-hmm. the United States. And right. a 1% increase in interest rates is 67 tri- 67, sorry, $670 billion of additional interest payments per year. And if we look back to the 1980s when inflation was raising, uh, raging in the early, in 1980 itself, is that they had to raise interest rates five uh, percent above the rate of inflation to arrest the rise in price of gold right. and to pull people back into bonds again? So this is 
on a number of fronts, uh, not just oil shortage, but also uh, global debt market basis. It's it's a, a very, very uh, difficult strategic uh, period that we're facing right now. And, it, you know, I, I would advocate um, moving towards a, a more sustainable, sound money system um, in Europe, in the United States, and not try to fight this because... Uh, you're not going to get there militarily, and, and you're not going to get there trying to to flog uh, what is visible. To I, I think any rational rational observer would look at the fiat debt money system that we have now as as quite comical and and totally unsustainable. David, just uh, one thought that comes to mind here is: what guarantees do we have that the Chinese won't create a paper market uh, rather than to allow the gold price to rise to a level that would clear clear the market? Well, the Shanghai Gold Exchange. I mean, it, the the foundation of that market is it's it's the the kryptonite to the Western system is that you you can't write a contract for a one kilo bar until one kilo is is deposited uh, in in the vault system there. Um, so, if if countries are taking delivery of their metal, which I suspect that they would, I wouldn't feel better uh, holding gold in a vault in Shanghai as opposed to holding one. Uh, in an external account, I, it would only make sense to me if, if a country could take delivery of the metal itself. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. Uh, as, as we mentioned, as I mentioned earlier, you can't print the metal, and that's that's I think what prevents that. Jay is that I believe that countries are going to start taking delivery uh, of the metal for uh, for the delta, what the you know the yuan that they don't want to use to purchase product from the Chinese, and they would take the remainder at least in the in the metal form. You know, um, we talk. A lot of times uh, we've had um, uh, Mr. Angdahl on this show. He talks about the new Silk Road. Uh, and there was also, on I think, February 21st of, of this year, or of last year, actually, an, an article in the South China Morning Post announcing that the Hong Kong Gold Exchange was coordinating the Yuan Gold Exchange corridor from Hong Kong to Dubai, including Vietnam, Marinar, and Singapore and you know others along the Silk Road. I mean, the point I think Americans don't really focus on at all is that ultimately your security depends on on economic stability. And the Chinese and and other parts of the world have been growing economically, while the United States has been growing through debt and through becoming an increasingly unstable economy. Would you would you agree with that? Yeah, I mean the the it's an unsustainable debt. Uh, system that we have right now, and that in, in you're, you're generating less GDP growth uh, than each dollar of debt that you're adding. So it's un, it's clearly unsustainable, and and the debt needs, in my, in my view, to be written down to a sustainable level, and the monetary system needs to be reformed. Um, but yeah, the the, the corridor that uh, China announced, it, what it allows them to do is to create uh, multiple markets uh, whereby um, uh, gold is traded in one, and you can settle. Uh, uh, one for physical gold. So it looks to me like they're setting up a network uh, for a gold-backed uh, global currency. The other thing is that uh, China and Russia several years ago announced that they had a SWIFT bank settlement system alternate that's already been developed and that allows yes. them to tr- trade between their countries without having to go through the Western-controlled uh, SWIFT system. Right. And so with the physical settlement from these one uh, gold markets that China has announced that they've set up, um, along with the SWIFT uh, system alternative. And by the way, Saudi Arabia has just contracted an American company to develop a bank settlement system based on blockchain, also outside yeah. the SWIFT system. 
Huh. So we yeah. see these various countries are moving to establish a non uh, a banking system and a settlement system beyond the reach of of, of uh, Western countries. Right. David, we're going to have to leave it go at that uh, with just a minute left. Uh, in the next 10, 15 seconds, what should investors be doing to prepare for this calamity that lies ahead? Uh, I would uh, consider the fact that it's important to uh, fix interest rates if we're going to have a rising interest rate environment. We have spiking gold price prices that happens. And in the end, I think the only secure asset is the metal itself. It's uh, um, if you hold equities in in a banking system uh, uh, discount trading uh, platform, uh, when the banks have problems, oftentimes the, the traders uh, have problems as well. So it's All right. be a very unstable situation. All right. We'll have to leave it go at that. So own the metal is what you're saying. Gold, for sure. Silver, maybe secondarily. That is all the time we have. Thanks so much for being with us today, David. Uh, folks, at, uh, next week, John Rubino will be with me, Nav Dhaliwal of Bonterra as well, and uh, Michael Oliver, hopefully, too. So until then, goodbye, and God's blessings to you. Thank you again for listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor. Please join us again next Tuesday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel.